0: Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad free on Amazon Music, include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners. In the past, this show has spent a considerable amount of time discussing the stories of the strange lights we see in our skies. We may get to some of those stories tonight, but rather than focusing specifically on the lights in the skies, we're going to consider what happens when the damn things crash land in my beautiful country. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, Canadian UFO researcher Chris Rutkowski. Is going to join us for a no-holds-barred discussion on Canadian UFO crashes. Chris Rutkowski, if uh, aliens or UFOs or whatever they are, are smart enough to get here, why the hell would they be crashing? Isn't that like at the end of a long trip to only crash? What do you make of that? Exactly. You know, here they are traversing time and
1: space across millions or perhaps billions of kilometers. They get over over this little rocky planet and, you know, they get hit by lightning or they just steer wrong and they crash it. That's remarkable. Mm -hmm. In fact, the whole uh, idea of UFO crashes and, and materials left behind and this type of thing. It just—it doesn't make sense intuitively when you think about it, but uh, it really has captured the imagination. Uh, it's, there's no question; it's it's part of the, the the memes and the milieu of the whole UFO thing.
0: Yeah, that that's a one thing about it. Like, is, is absurd in a way? Like, I yeah, I'll say it. As absurd as it is for them to just have this unfortunate accident after they arrive from you know light years and universes beyond to to crash here. Um, it's become such a part of the UFO story. There's like these certain kind of trappings with these stories that come up often. And one of them is, you know, of course, a UFO crash. Like, I know you know so much about the history of UFOs. Does that always seem to be a part of the story? Or is there a certain point you can look back on and be like, yeah, all of a sudden UFOs started crashing? Well, there've been a lot of cases like that over the years. In fact, uh, the UFO crash retrieval symposia,
1: uh, i have well, on my bookcase i can see from here uh many many things that a number of people have worked on uh, many publications just just listing the supposed crashes i mean it's although it's absurd i mean we have sophisticated jet fighters and things like that uh in the various militaries around the world and some of them crash all the time uh, ships uh uh sink i mean uh, you know the, the technology itself does not preclude some some unfortunate accidents. So, I suppose if you were, I mean, I don't think the the idea is that the the ones that crash supposedly are the UFOs that come from uh, another star system. I think the idea is that a mothership comes between star systems and sends down a little scout craft, and those are the things that have their problems. But. <laughs> Um, the good driver so stays on the mothership. That driver, yeah, yeah. So it's not unreasonable, I suppose, although it is really strange that uh, uh, that we would have so many of these uh, cases. And and actually, the the thing is, when you actually look at the cases, they most of them do have some pretty simple explanations, uh, although there are some that are really, really odd. Um, and a number of years ago, I put together a, a list of crashes in Canada, uh, or supposed crashes, or, or or hard landings, or whatever in Canada, um, and people were, you know, they were kind of interested, in, uh, and they got some hits. But it's recently that uh, people are really interested in this sort of thing. Um, and there's other cases I didn't even include in that list. In fact, one that I had completely forgotten about, but has some relevance to to what's going on right now. Um, so in November of 2006. Um, I had started getting some calls from people who had said that there were, you know, did I hear about the crashed UFO near Steinbach, Manitoba? Now that's a, uh, a city that's a little bit Southeast of Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, it's in the farming country. And the story was that people had reported seeing suspicious aircraft contrails in the sky. Okay. Standard. But then they were startled to see numerous flashing lights. And then ambulances, fire trucks, and they were moving right through farming fields. And um, and then people had said not only that, but on the ground, people were seeing creatures or people wearing spacesuits, shiny spacesuits in the fields. And <coughs> excuse me. And um, the the media started taking an interest in this too. But I was getting all these calls and what do you do about this sort of thing? Well, it turns out that it wasn't aliens but the canadian food inspection agency was having an avian influenza outbreak exercise (laughs) in 2006 and they are having pandemic preparedness exercises
0: in manitoba what a way to freak out a small town (laughs) holy cow (laughs) yeah that's all they need is like you're running some kind of thing like that and some ufo researcher manages to take a few photos and all of a sudden you're famous yes absolutely <laughs> uh, so yeah yeah but we have even like something like that aside when i think of canada's two biggest ufo stories both of them involve some kind of object either crashing or landing i'm thinking shag harbor as well as falcon mm-hmm. lake both are although mm-hmm shag harbor is a more typical crash it appears the story is that something came from the sky and went into the water falcon lake it sounds more like the thing landed
1: yeah i mean yeah there's no question that uh that falcon lake isn't it really in the same category um but uh yeah absolutely shag harbor uh you know has all the elements that that we talk about you know uh, uh Uh, December 3rd, 1979, Shag
0: Harbor. Boy, that was a big story. What's the date? Oh, wait, you're not talking about that Shag Harbor crash. What? Are are you pranking me here? Is there two? No, no, no.
1: Uh, uh, You know, I've been going through... uh, I've been keeping track of the government documents and uh, uh, what's in the National Research Council files and the RCAF files. And on December 3rd, 1979 at uh, somewhere around uh, 6.45 in the evening, Ralph Smith in Shag Harbor, um, who was just 300 yards from the water, and also Chris Smith, who also lived in Shag Harbor, saw an object shaped like a shiny semicircle with uh, red and yellow um, light underneath, appeared to look like a parachute even. Uh, it was observed to the Southeast of Shag Harbor, seen for five minutes, and the object descended and disappeared into the sea. Wow that's not the That's not the Shag Harbor you're that's talking about. That's not what about, I was right? thinking. You're of.
0: talking about some other one. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, why Why is this not well known? This is the first I've ever heard of this, and I've yeah it's It's on file, uh, you know, and I, I documented it in some of my uh,
1: my earlier posts. And it's however, it's actually not even in my list of of some of the crashes uh, onto Canada in my blog post that I posted back in, uh, in 2016. Hmm. Um, turns out there's even other ones, but not in Shag Harbor, but in Nova Scotia where objects were seen to fall into the ocean and the RCMP investigated.
0: Wow. So it's, it's just,
1: it's just how things go. It's, it's really quite interesting.
0: What, what I find interesting about that, I think you said 79 Shag Harbor event, and you got to send me some info on that, because what, what's interesting about it is what happened in 67 in Shag Harbor is a really big deal. The Canada's Roswell, the whole nine books, documentaries about it. It yeah. didn't become a big story until well after 79. So my initial thought would be it would be kind of like a copycat thing. Like, I also saw a UFO. Right. But... <laughs> in seventy nine, the sixty seven sighting or crash landing in Shag Harbor wasn't like a well known, no. like a local phenomenon the way it is now. So that that's compelling. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting that uh, that we have that plus so many others as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me some others because I uh, really like. F- Sh- the 67 Shag Harbor story I've covered on this show, that was the UFO crash that has, to this day, remained unsolved or unexplained, although you have a strong opinion. Um, you were <laughs> the bucket of cold water I threw in the face of the listeners at the end of my Shag Harbor episode where you presented your <laughs> Falcon Lake is more of a... How would you describe the UFO's... Be- or the object's behavior in that? Did did he just... micalek? Did he just happen upon like one that was just like parked or something um well you know he was doing so Stefan Mahalik in 1967
1: was he was an amateur rock hound and he just loved rocks and, and prospecting and, and all that sort of stuff and he uh, was doing just doing his thing at lunchtime i uh, had stopped for lunch uh, around noon uh, on the Maylong weekend it was a nice warm day and this for all intents and purposes a hollywood style flying saucer seemed to land uh just not far away from him he walked up to it um, he touched the side of it with his rubberized glove which melted a big blast of hot gas hit him in the chest uh setting his clothes on fire setting some of the leaves and pine needles on fire he was t- uh, eventually treated in hospital and the case was investigated by the RCMP, the RCAF, even the United States Air Force came up to take a look. And, you know, there was never any official explanation uh, for what happened. In fact, the RCMP and DND said they had no explanation. Um, and, and what do you do with cases like that? It's uh, it's very strange, but it wasn't a crash. I mean, yeah. this. although the idea was that perhaps this was some sort of uh, American secret weapon, space test, something that went astray and, and, you know, happened to land in Canada, Hmm. Uh, you know, because Falcon Lake is just a matter of, uh, you know, what, about a hundred kilometers north of the American
0: border, probably less than that, 50 or 75. So, yeah in yeah, and, and you're um famous or infamous for being a like a skeptic or a debunker and for people who are only listening and don't see the video I'm using air co- air quotes but you're always someone who you can take these wild stories and you usually can find like a logical explanation that often convinces me uh, to see things your way mm-hmm. with with Falcon like like I know that's kind of like a case that you're really close with do you have an opinion on what actually happened?
1: um you know no in fact uh this is one of the reasons why i'm so fascinated with the case why i wrote the book on it because it doesn't seem to have a reasonable explanation i mean certainly elements of it um have some explanations um uh the radioactive piece of metal is really strange um i don't think and it was found a year after the fact and uh, you know there's some strange things around that um i mean maybe that has an explanation um, but the object uh, that was seen by the witness himself, um, it, it, you know, he wasn't the type of guy to make up stories. He wasn't a publicity hound. Um, you know, he was physically injured. Um, you know, there was some additional evidence found at the site, and the RCMP and RCAF both grilled this guy uh, and his family, and his friends, and his workmates and associates, um, and you know, they could not shake the story. Uh, and they had no idea what had happened to this guy. And I spoke to um, the one of the well, the, pri- the leader of the investigation team for the RCMP uh, back in 1967, who was still alive until last year, if you can believe wow. it. And I had spoken to him the year before, and um, he went had gone on to uh, leading the criminal investigations branch um, uh, uh, in other places around the globe. And uh, he retired back to Winnipeg here. And when he, I asked him bluntly, I said, "What do you think happened?" And he just he told me on camera that he could not explain. He has no idea what what this guy uh, had seen. And he had, you know, interviewed thousands of of, uh, of you know uh, of uh, people in cases where he could crack them or solve
0: uh, the mystery. And this was one case he couldn't. Wow. Uh, but I guess not necessarily a UFO crash. So let's get onto that. Okay. You probably know more about UFOs in Canada than any sane person should. Uh, so I'm sure you got a lot of UFO crash cases to tell me about, other than the seventy nine Shag Harbor one. So um I'm, yeah, I'm ready sure. for UFO for Canadian UFO class. UFO crash class. Okay. Here we go. Here's one that everybody knows
1: about. Francis Gary Powers. Now, we're Canadians, so we should be excused for not knowing this name automatically. But historians should know that Francis Gary Powers was an American pilot of the U-2 spy plane. Mm-hmm. And um, he crashed in the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, he was held prisoner. Uh, and that, of course, because the Russians, Soviet, the Soviets at that time had uh, had the U-2 spy plane, it really compromised the entire espionage things it was a really really big thing in the middle of the cold war back in 1960 um, curiously enough another u2 spy plane crashed in saskatchewan and nobody has heard of this
0: hmm.
1: um, it turns out that um, um, uh, another pilot had engine problems and had to make an emergency landing on march the 15th in 1960 Uh, in northern Saskatchewan on a a very remote lake called Wapaweka Lake which turns out to be very close to the Manitoba border and this pilot had to be rescued by RCMP from Flin Flon, Manitoba and uh, they tromped out there and uh, you know had to call it in and say you know this big plane flew out (laughs) fell from the sky and it's it's really quite remarkable and it has been documented the uh, the uh, you know the CIA had comments on this. This is part of Canadian history, but uh,
0: it wasn't a UFO necessarily, but a U two. That's pretty. That's like the next best thing. Absolutely. That must have been an awkward call where he's like, "I was flying a top secret espionage spy plane and had engine trouble above Saskatchewan." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what were they doing above Saskatchewan? <laughs> yeah, they're spying on the farmers because there's not much out there that must be but the u2 uh, alessa I-, I could be wrong but is that not a plane that flies like really really high yeah they fly um at uh, oh 60 to a hundred thousand feet mm-hmm. so he could they could have easily just been passing over on their way to summer possibly yeah probably going over the pole to, to russia Yeah, or something it, like here's, here's a thought too yeah. as you mentioned that that happened kind of like during the cold war um Oh, did you, what year was it that this happened? 1960. Yeah. So like in Canada, the Cold War era, is, it's kind of like the heyday of Canadian UFO stories with Falcon Lake and Shag Harbor and so many others from back then. And I think like that would have been a time where people were really kind of maybe paranoid or maybe cautious Paralyzed. just because of the the kind of the, the nature of the world. And we're kind of in a separate Renaissance today in 2021 of UFO stories with everything going on across the world with it. But although we're not in like a Cold War, there is a lot of, you know, China, this and Russia and spies. Like, I feel like we're kind of in like this new modern version of a Cold War. And I wonder if that's why we're having so much discussion in the mainstream of like UFOs and weird things in the sky.
1: Well, I think so. In fact, uh, I've heard some, uh, some uh, experts say we are in a new Cold War, absolutely. Um, that, uh, uh, you know, tensions are very high between the United States and Russia uh, and, uh, and China. So you've got this this triad of, of major powers and uh, people are really nervous because um, Russian uh, aircraft are, you know, flying incursions uh, over the United States and into the Canadian North. In fact, the Canadian North is is prime for this sort of thing right now.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think we're in a in an era when, you know, there's some nervousness about what's going on up there. Mm-hmm. And then when you think of like back in the 60s when there was the thoughts of, you know, these experimental jets and stuff coming over to spy on us, the, the stuff we would have today would be beyond the wildest imaginations of the peoples back in the 60s with drones and everything else. So it's like, it is reasonable now to think that, some of the things we're seeing could very likely or very well be some kind of spy intelligence gathering equipment. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's uh, completely reasonable. And even um, Shag Harbor plays into that, right? Wasn't your, if I remember correctly, your theory about the Shag Harbor crash uh, of 67 had to do with film canisters.
1: Yeah. and, And one, yeah. One theory that I thought was quite attractive was, um that there was a program called the corona satellite uh, program which was so classified that um information about it actually wasn't released until the 90s wow. and this is something that was flying in the, the 50s and 60s and we do know that that what was happening is that um uh the satellite would go up and take film because that was before digital um of whatever flying over russia or or wherever and then drop it um, and release it down into the atmosphere Um, and there were um, uh, aircraft that would chase this this package and drop from space um, and literally catch it and uh, sometimes not even catch it but allow it to fall into the the water and then retrieve it so we knew we know that this program was going um one thing i I noted is that uh, there was nothing on that day uh that's officially known but of course we don't know if we have all the records of all the secret flights so i mean it's possible uh but i mean that's something that we knew was falling into the ocean uh off nova scotia because uh we do know that uh the u.s navy base which was a little ways away from shag harbor but not that far um was in operation Uh, and not only that um, people are talking about shag harbor in, in terms of you know what was the Navy doing there and there was some underwater operations well there's also um the uh the underwater microphones and secret listening devices uh, that were being laid on the seafloor around there by the united states as well so there was all sorts of possibilities of of activity that might play or might have played into the shag harbor uh story in some way so i i wouldn't rule it out and that's uh,
0: you know it's a possibility Wow. It's, it's cool where even if it isn't like an, you know, an extraterrestrial craft crashing into the water in a small fishing community, there's still so much other fascinating kind of elements to the story. With, sure. You know, and it, in also in
1: 1960, um, in addition to the U-2, there was something weird that fell into Clan Lake in the Northwest Territories. And in June of that year, um, there was a hunter that was dropped off by a seaplane at this place called Clan Lake. Uh, it's some distance away from uh, from uh, Yellowknife. Uh, and after the plane left, he was sort of making camp and that sort of thing. And he heard a loud noise and he looked into the sky, couldn't figure it was coming from. So he went back to working on his pack. And all of a sudden, uh, he, he heard something fall from the sky and turned around just in time to see this, uh, an object splashing into the water, rotating as it did and throwing out Water in all directions, um, it, you know, and it was. Uh, There's no steam to suggest that it was hot, but it seemed to be about four to six feet wide, with spokes coming out of it like arms. Wow! And as this thing spun down, a rush of water sort of, you know, came towards him and and uh, uh, caused the uh, you know, waves to hit the shore. And then this object sank beneath the waves. Well, this guy, you know. Uh, grabbed the canoe and went out there to try and figure it out. And there was this gouge that was, you know, just in the reeds uh, along the shoreline. Um, and some of the, the reeds were sort of floating on the water because they had been ripped out and it looked like something was under the water. Well, he's tried poking it with uh, with whatever sticks he uh, he had, couldn't reach down far enough, but he went back to his stuff. And then he eventually reported this uh, about a month later to the RCMP who flew out there um, did you know had longer poles um, and tried to find whatever was under the water nothing could be found the RCMP in turn notified the National Research Council who thought maybe it was a meteorite um, which would have mean that was valuable and then you know there's something that large certainly would have had some uh, some uh, value um, and so uh, but by this time, the water had started to get cold. And by the time the NRC got its act together, the lake had frozen over. Well, they were contracting people to fly, fly in with um, uh, magnetometers to try and find out, you know, if they could find this thing under the ice. And there was discussion and um, correspondence that I found uh, in the archives going back for, like it, it covered a period of of years. Uh, and eventually the national research council just said ah you know what let's just forget about it we'll never get this thing so there's two problems with that one is a meteorite that fell from the sky and made such a big impression and you know ripped up the the reeds and whatever chances are that's pretty valuable Mm -hmm. so i think there might be some scientific use to go back and look at the darn thing and if it's not a meteorite let's say it was a chunk of a satellite uh, Russian or American you'd think that this would also be worth tracking down because one of the other cases that I refer to uh, was Cosmos 954 and um, when Cosmos 954 uh, hit the Northwest Territories in um, now was that what uh, 1979 something like that Uh, I'm trying to remember now Um, but uh, yes, Cosmos no, 954 1970, in 1978, Cosmos 954 crashed into northern Canada near Great Slave Lake, not all that far from Plan Lake, by the way. Um, and it was a major operation. Uh, the United States flew up immediately with uh, radiation detectors because Cosmos 954, the Russian satellite, had a nuclear reactor on board that was powering it. It was a spy satellite, had a lot of reason to, to retrieve this. And basically, um, the United States uh, and some joint uh, uh, operations combed through um, the snow and ice uh, for weeks and months, trying to to find every piece. And they found and removed pieces as small as a pencil point.
0: Wow. Why would they
1: need to do that? Well, some of it was radioactive. They wanted to remediate uh, as much as possible. But they also wanted to make sure that, of course, this was in an area where uh, Inuit were, uh, were living. They had to, you know, uh, make sure that it was safe for people to continue to live in the area.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, chunks of this reactor were eventually taken down to, uh, oddly enough, Manitoba, the White Shell Nuclear Research Establishment, mm. which is also where Stefan Michalak, who had the Falcon Lake case, that's where he was taken for an analysis to find out whether he was somehow radioactive from what happened. Uh, so there is all sorts of these intricate um, connections uh, all over the place. And, you know, Clan Lake was, was 1960, uh, Cosmos 954 was 1978. Um, and in uh, October of 1967, sorry, uh, well, that, that was Shag Harbor. Um, but before that, um, there was something that was seen to fall into Wollaston Lake in Saskatchewan, uh, 1968. Um, where uh, nobody saw this thing fall, but pieces of um, a, a satellite or, or some metal were found uh, and tested. It was found to be uh, uh, 99% pure titanium. Hmm. Uh, and it was described at the time as the largest piece from a satellite that has ever landed on Earth. This was 1968. Okay, And these pe- pieces were like like this big and... They're clearly from some shielding uh, of, a, of another satellite. And those were retrieved and examined. And uh, I mean, people are always talking about you know pieces of UFOs you know, um, and the metamaterials and all this sort of stuff. Well, this is metamaterial. This is titanium with all sorts of sheathing and layers and so forth that had actually come from space. And whereas the metamaterial pieces that people are talking about usually with regard to UFOs are really tiny, mm-hmm. like this big, um, these Wallace Lake samples were like feet wide. Okay. And, um, you know, and they were obtained and uh, they were examined and tested. And the Cosmos 954, I think the largest piece was four or five feet long, um, and, uh, was in fact radioactive. So if something crashes, um, and, uh, it's reported and the United States or Canada investigates, it's documented very very well and in the case of 954 the report uh listed dozens and dozens and dozens of locations like this thing scattered across um hundreds of kilometers in the canadian north and was mapped very very carefully so it shows exactly what would happen if a ufo was to crash because these were thought to be ufos but we're found uh, to be, you know, mundane objects, except for the Klan Lake. We still don't know what that was. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it shows you that there is a documentation on a paper
0: trail investigating what was what was seen. Yeah, I guess especially so if it's like radioactive material and stuff. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of different reports and stuff. I'm just thinking like if your oil tank leaks, there's all these environmental kind of checks and balances that have to happen. I'm assuming if you find like radioactive metals, there's probably other, you know, similar kind of processes probably. that have to be followed. As a matter of fact, in the case of Cosmos um, of 954, there was an uh, a
1: environmental impact study done uh, for wildlife because there was some uh, protected species uh, that lived in these areas where uh, some of these pieces were found. And so, uh, you know, the, uh, the Wildlife Federation got involved too. Like this this was a big, big deal. And even though, you know, Cosmos 54 was just a matter of 40 years ago, who remembers that now?
0: <laughs> you know, and, and you do the ufo report every year like the canadian ufo survey do you see many reports like present day of ufo crashes or, or are we mostly just reporting starlink
1: yeah mostly ufos uh these days are lights in the sky very rarely in fact this is one thing that i've been able to document because of the the canadian ufo survey partially we started in the 80s and even by that time the uh, number of close encounters of the second time second time where evidence is left were really few and far between in fact one of the projects that myself and my colleagues are working on is backfilling beyond uh, uh earlier than 1989 uh looking uh, to document the the you know the ufo cases in canada and it became very obvious that um, the the evidence cases and the, the crash cases and all that sort of thing, they really petered out in the, I would say 70s um, and were almost completely non-existent uh, by about the 80s. And then we got into the crop circle uh, era in the 80s. And it was really strange because most of those had no associated UFO reports whatsoever with these crop circles we just found. But at the same time the um you know the the rings or or lands uh, you know the, the or ground markings uh were almost unheard of uh past that time so it's almost like the crop circles took the place of that now that the crop circle phenomenon has waned although every year we still hear some classic cases from england and, and other places um by a large uh, evidence cases and trace cases are are
0: are gone uh,
1: from the UFO literature.
0: Yeah. Uh, what what is the trend now? Cuz like you you'd never really hear of a like I'd never heard of a crop circle appearing. We had the monolithic uh, things last uh, year for a little bit. Yeah. But but now it's it's always something in the sky.
1: Yeah, um, which is what most UFOs are, you know, lights in the sky. Uh, but it's true, yeah, the the close encounters is something that leaves behind a, a something of its passing very very rarely do we get those now but i think what we've seen a shift to um and be, this comes out of the pentagon report of course is that there's instrumented de- uh, detection you know radar yes um infrared all that sort of stuff the, the which gun we cameras have, we, and yeah which we did have a little bit before but um that is more of the hard evidence and, and for me i don't know radar and and infrared is not necessarily hard evidence it's certainly more um uh, not even tangible tangible is the wrong word but it's certainly a better evidence than just uh, uh you know a, eyewitness because you have some record of it yeah um but but that seems to be where we're going uh for uh you know for in terms of documentation
0: anyways for the lot yeah for the I don't know why I asked that because as soon as you answered I'm like yeah of course that's where where it's going if you think of the big cases from the last few years and everything that's kind of leading up to what's going on in the U.S. right now it's all like um, American military fancy cameras that keep track of speed and all this stuff like the gun cameras i think flir f-l-i-r cameras yeah yeah. but it's like every ufo sighting now is like one of those videos that like some u.s ship leaks or you know or whatnot but that's that's the thing now but at least that has a like a scientific angle and there's no um uh, like speculation on what the eyewitness saw or something you have like actual data to go with which is that's cool
1: yeah although you know in the case of the what the pentagon has been uh you know the, what's been leaked and the pentagon admits yes it came from a uh, military personnel uh doesn't the pentagon itself doesn't say that they're unexplained but it's it says that you know they're part of their study um a, a lot of those are, have some explanations i mean as, as much as ufo fans want to insist that they're not i mean uh, uh this uh, pyramid which was actually a triangle that's actually strobing at about the same rate as a uh, as an aircraft and and the infrared uh, aperture is exactly that shape you Mm. know you get these things that you know they probably have some explanation even the one of the of the object that that fairly new one that's moving across or seems to be moving back and forth and then drops down a little bit Mm. into the water Um, you know when you actually stabilize that image it's not moving back and forth at all it's just dropping slowly down to the water and that literally can be anything yeah Uh, and and it's also racked out to the to the limit almost to infinity so it's it's pixelated it's you know it's not proof of anything really Mm -hmm. but the eyewitness reports of the pilots that's something different because um one would think that Uh, Navy pilots or Air Force Force pilots for that matter who have some significant air flying time you know would be able to tell you know whether it's a drone or a balloon or or whatever and if they say something's flying circles around their aircraft I don't know what that is Mm. Uh, and that's basically what the Pentagon said you know we don't have any evidence of of aliens but we're not entirely sure what was actually seen which is kind of a a weaselly way of of doing it but what's curious for me about the pentagon thing is it's exactly what happened in history um project blue book folded and the Condon report came out and basically they said yeah you know we're not sure what this stuff is it's not aliens but well here's a bunch of cases we couldn't explain 1952 the air force had a um had a press conference talking about ufos or the flying saucers and the pentagon spokesperson says yeah we don't think it's aliens in any way we don't know what's been seen but we don't think it's aliens almost word for word for what we have this year and it's like don't people realize that that history is repeating itself (laughs) and that it's playing out exactly like it's happened before and uh i know a lot of people are distrustful of the uh of the military and the government and i'm fairly certain it doesn't matter what comes out of the pentagon nobody's gonna believe it
0: no I, I feel the exact same way no matter what the answer is but i'm not expecting any great revelation from it i'm sure it's just going to be fodder for history channel documentaries and podcasts uh it's definitely not disclosure that's for sure um yeah and you know, the, when I looked at you, you, what we've been talking about here, you have your the the blog post where you went through a bunch of different Canadian uh, UFO crashes. One that you mentioned is a story that's close to me geographically, but I don't know much about it. The Ebenezer PEI Oh, UFO. yeah, Ebenezer, Cause, yeah. Because that involves a UFO or a reported, purported UFO craft, but that's a story I've just... I've always been like, I'm going to go down that rabbit hole someday, but I just haven't gotten there yet. What's the story with Ebenezer, and when did that happen? Yeah,
1: it's it's really strange. Um August 22nd, 1990, um, uh, something happened on Prince Edward Island. Uh, It was about uh, 7.30, 7.45 at night. Um, Shirley Yeo of Ebenezer, she saw a a glowing object land in the woods. And they watched this object, she described it like an ice cream cone. Uh, And once it landed, uh, she said it was still glowing. Hours later, uh, and people in the area had said they were watching it through the trees. It looked like a big round ball of light. Uh, and then as they were watching, these military helicopters started flying all over the place, circling the area. Uh, and people had no idea what was going on. This was something uh, something quite remarkable. Mm. Uh, the RCMP confirmed they had like a dozen calls about the object and sent people to investigate. One officer said that he could see it in the distance and then lost sight of it. Um, and it is very strange. So this was investigated, and uh, the Charlottetown Astronomy Club searched the area itself uh, the next morning and couldn't find anything. Um, and the uh, you know it, it, from the description, like an ice cream cone, that's a, a classic description of of a bright fireball or meteor. It looks like a long blue or yeah. teardrop, but the color was wrong. The fact that the light persisted for quite some time uh very very strange um and even uh the uh, president of the royal astronomical society of canada uh uh uh, local chapter uh said it it, you know you couldn't possibly be a meteorite Uh, it had to be parts of a of a satellite Hmm. um and paul delaney who most people will recognize he's on tv all the time on ctv or cbc Uh, from York University in Toronto, Um, it was probably uh, not a meteor, and he thought it was some sort of satellite. However, um, NORAD and uh, CFB Halifax were asked about what was going on, and they said, you know, the UFO is nothing but a meteor, and neither military agency would, would say if anything struck the ground whatsoever. Now, what's curious is that there had been other reports of objects in the sky that night from... Brunswick um, and uh, other parts uh, of the Maritimes and since then um, some people from the uh, the Prince Edward Island uh, UFO group Facebook group have actually went out to Ebenezer with metal detectors and they you know talked with more people and um, the latest I heard and this kept, came up just a matter of uh, about a week ago now um, that they found these large uh, indentations in the ground in the area of the woods where uh, the light was seen. I mean, this, unfortunately, you know, we're talking, you uh, know, uh, 30 years ago, so it's unlikely that, you know, one would think it would be unlikely that there would still be some something to be found, but great for the the local UFO gang to try and, you know, reinvestigate a cold case, because you never know. There might be some clues to what
0: happened back then. Yeah. And you talked earlier about the, the idea that if a meteorite crashes, it has, and, and actually hits, touches down on Earth, it has value. Why is that? Is it just like the precious metals or whatever it would contain? Why are they worth money?
1: Well, any meteorite found now offers clues to um, uh, the formation of the solar system and adds valuable information. There are, there are cases where certain types of meteorites have. Um, Uh, have compositions that are unusual Uh, there are actually uh, um, uh, a class of meteorite uh, that seems to come from other astronomical bodies Uh, and uh, you know it it gives us some insight into you know how we got here in addition to the metal itself of course and but not all meteorites are metal some are just stony Mm. Uh, but even that tells us something of the body that it came from you know it wasn't a uh, a metal rich it was some sort of rocky uh, object so the, it, it gives us a, a, an idea of you know
0: astronomically what, what's going on up there hmm. interesting um, any other crashes that you you think are notable before I start uh, telling you about some UFOs uh, events <laughs> your opinions on
1: well one that I, I really puzzled over and um, was Etsakam Alberta And uh, a number of people in uh, uh, 2001 uh, had seen uh, something fall to the earth uh, in this, uh, you know, very, very, um, you know, uh, sparsely populated region of of Alberta. And the next day, a crater was found in the ground. Uh, And, you know, when I say crater, It looks like a crater, Uh, it was uh, as big as a car, as wide as a, as long as a car, and it had the raised rim and it was, you know, hollow in the center and it appeared overnight. Hmm. Um, Now, this was actually investigated by uh, some, uh, some scientists from uh, the University of Lethbridge um, and was also investigated by the Astronomy Society and the you know because it it looked like a meteor crater and and yet they couldn't they didn't find any meteor inside or meteorite inside Um, uh, although the lethbridge uh, scientists said that uh, you know it's probably a, a fragment of a meteorite or a metallic solid object that fell to the earth from outer space very high speed probably 500 kilometers an hour and it sort of threw up the, uh, this crater. However, astronomers looked at it and uh, Alan Hildebrand of the University of Calgary who was the leading authority on impact craters in not just Canada, but around the world. Um, he was actually the one who um, broke the news about dinosaurs dying off from the meteor that meteorite or asteroid that hit uh, Mexico. Um, in his opinion, and this is somebody who knows this stuff, he didn't think that ETSICOM was made by a meteorite. It was something else. Hmm. So if it was not caused by something falling from space, what was it? And it's a mystery. We have no explanation for what fell into ETSICOM, Alberta.
0: Interesting. It kind of reminds me a bit of another event on your list with the Bell Island boom which is bell island boom yeah yeah, there's like in bell island newfoundland i've i did a multi-part series and i i also um interviewed um cynthia bickford who was she was only a child at the time but she lived in and still lives in the house that was like ground zero for where it went down on what they call the bickford farm but that was that's also a story where like there's no question something happened but there's no explanation for it. I think people who listen to my show, especially that have listened for years, probably remember that story. But uh, I don't think we've ever talked about it. This, are, are you big on the Bell Island boom?
1: Well, I mean, I, I know uh, I've read, um, you know, the, the scientific theory that it was um, uh, caused by a Super Bowl,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which seems reasonable. It's also suspicious that 78, which is when this happened, is also the time of the Concord. Mm -hmm. And there's no question that a lot of the booms off the coast of the, uh, uh, of the Eastern seaboard of the United States and Canada were caused by the Concorde breaking, uh, breaking the sound area. So um, it was either a Concorde boom or um, a, a super bolt. And I think the reason they said it was a super bolt was because they've been monitoring lightning um, using their satellites. And uh, I think, uh the veilus satellite suggested that a superbolt had had occurred somewhere in Newfoundland uh, on or around that time hmm. so that's that's where that comes from whether that's true or not i don't know but you know it it sure caused
0: quite the quite the thing mm, definitely now uh here's how i want to end this is um anytime i get the the UFOs Above Canada Facebook group, that I I give people the option to report a UFO sighting. It mm-hmm. sends me all the information in an email, and as I get them, I forward them right off to you. Um, and there's been a lot of them. In the last month, it, it, even roughly, like how many emailed UFO reports do you think I've sent you? I think probably 30 or something? Over the the past month or so? Yeah. I feel like I'm sending probably a, one every second. Yeah. Day. Yeah, probably
1: a dozen or, or, or yeah. so, maybe 15, something like that. Yeah. And, and of course, yeah. that's that's just, I mean, that, that's not all of them. I mean, we get uh, stuff sent to us directly. Uh, there's stuff that's posted in the, in the web pages themselves, uh, stuff from MUFON, stuff from Peter Davenport and so forth. Friends. Um, and so there are cases that are continually being reported. Um, the um, I, I think the thing to remember, too, is uh, that the number of UFO reports is still down compared to last year. Mm. Uh, as many as we're getting now, it's not making up for the hundreds uh that we were getting at this time last mm-hmm. year. So what, you know, uh it's curious that during the pandemic the explanation why we're getting so many reports is because of the pandemic in in 2020. 2021 we're still in lockdown and yet the number of
0: UFO reports is not as high as it was the previous year. And why it, that's so Yeah. I have no idea. And UFOs get as much or more attention as ever right now. It seems like uh, well, there's a yeah, there is a there's a difference though. Media attention, uh, such as
1: what we're seeing right now on CNN and ABC and, and Pentagon and all that sort of stuff, traditionally, and I've done studies of of media content and UFOs. Um, uh, an increase in media attention does not generate current reports. In fact, what happens is somebody will be watching you know Barack Obama talk about UFOs on on James Gordon and uh, they'll say oh you know what i saw something when i was a kid and they'll make that report hmm. so we get older reports but not necessarily current reports
0: interesting and so that's that's the difference hmm. I, I have a current report for you. This is one oh, that okay. I... Okay, let's hear it. This let's is from your, your neck of the woods. And this is one that came from, uh, through the reporting um, form on UFOs Above Canada's Facebook group. It's from Winnipeg, yeah. Manitoba, um, mm-hmm. your neck of the woods, 29th of May, about 5 p.m. So I'm just going to read you the witnesses' uh, description. Sure. So what they say is, a large, metallic, highly reflective sphere flew over us at a very low altitude while flying a kite. It was a very clear day. It flew from south to north over the Minto Armory in Winnipeg. It was very windy that day and it seemed to be completely unaffected by the wind. It flew very stably over us and past the Minto Armory, disappearing over the building. Five or ten minutes later, it flew over us again at the same approach and then moved down in a very controlled manner behind the building. My girlfriend and I could not figure out how it could be flying that way, especially in the wind. They say that the sighting was about took about three minutes um, each sighting, with about five minutes between them. Um, yeah, I don't know what I what I think of that.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty strange. Um, Mintel Armory is actually in the very center of Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, a holdover for when uh, there were some uh, uh, troops stationed uh, uh, in uh, in some bases in Winnipeg from the 1940s um very old building i think it's actually used as a COVID injection site now or something like that mm. um and uh uh so it, it's strange that it would be right over the center of the city the description you know the fact it was taking three minutes to pass kind of sounds balloonish
0: In large spherical uh, object like I, you see those kind of big balloons that are like metallic
1: yeah yeah if i was to you know have to explain it that's probably what i would lean in the direction Mm -hmm. but um that was mystifying to the uh, these two uh, witnesses and they said it there was like either the same one um came back and and did it again or it was uh,
0: a second one yeah yeah and when they say at the same approach they would mean like flew in the same direction so which wouldn't really and i have to admit i I haven't had a chance to, to follow up on this one it's been a little hectic Mm-hmm. but this would be one to uh to investigate a little bit more hmm. um well i got another one and this one uh i definitely want to get your opinion on because it involves um a ufo event that occurred over a nuclear power plant in pickering ontario mm-hmm. uh my uh-huh. old stomping grounds i lived there for a summer um that's this, why you're blowing uh, now yeah this uh <laughs> This sighting lasted uh, just a little over six minutes. It happened on the 24th of May at 9.30 p.m. So I'll describe it to you here. So the witness describes it as four to five orange lights, very slowly moving, one at a time, came from the water behind the nuclear plant. They would get to a certain point in the sky and then vanish. And another one would come from behind the other lights, like they were trading places. And a couple of times Mm -hmm. the lights would just vanish. And there was two that stayed for quite a while at the beginning. They were there was a lineup of like four of them to a certain place in the sky and then they'd vanish. They looked to be something smaller they looked to be something smaller than a dime when we were to look at them in the sky. Multiple witnesses from people on our balconies watched the fireworks. We're watching fireworks. One sec. Multiple witnesses from people on our balconies watching the fireworks it was almost as if they positioned themselves over where the fireworks were to watch them. So there must've been fireworks going on. They're watching the what? fireworks as this occurs.
1: Well, that's the, uh, that's the May long weekend. Of course. That's that. Yes. Uh, May 24th. Weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, uh, uh, yeah, the weekend was the, the 24th. And so you know, that's what the fireworks were going. And I suspect, um, that's also what these things were not fireworks, but, uh, uh, Chinese lanterns. That's a, the perfect description. Orange lights rising and then vanishing after a while, and you can just imagine that they're lit one at a time.
0: Yes. And
1: the fact that they're over Pickering Nuclear Plant is really kind of the red herring because, um, uh, I mean the anything between Toronto and Montreal is going to be over the Pickering plant. It's the it's the regular flight path. Uh, from all air, all aircraft flying west to east and east to west. So, uh, whether it was a you know something deliberately over the plant or just, I mean,
0: of course, and and the plant's on the water too. So there's beaches, uh, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of uh, lots of walking uh, trails uh, parks. and parks in there too. So yeah. I, I could see yeah. people setting lighting. It, it's a large open area, so that would be a spot where people may set uh, set off Chinese lanterns. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah,
1: that that's my guess. What these were. But I mean, they're, you know, they're they they look kind of cool. Uh, I remember we did a a, a demonstration for um, there's a show on APTN called Indians and Aliens um, where uh, we set one off and they filmed it from the time I lit it to the time it disappeared in the
0: in the distance and it looked pretty cool. Neat. I've never seen one in real life, like in up close. I know what they what they are. It's a bit, it's like a paper ball with a candle in it? Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. the heat from the candle will make the ball or the paper shape flow Yeah. Out.
1: Back in the 1950s and 60s, um, uh, we used to make them from dry cleaner bags. And um, you'd get uh, and this, this is instructions for how to do it. <laughs> um, you know, get balsa wood from a hobby shop, balsa wood for, for making hobby planes, um, two long strips, uh, cross them up, um, and then get um, uh, some sort of ring. And I forget what we used as the as the paper ring, but you got a dry cleaner bag uh, attached to the uh, to these balsa wood. And in the center, you'd put a little can of uh, sterno or uh, uh, some heat source. Candles by themselves wouldn't work necessarily, but you, you know you might be able to make a a tea light, a couple of tea lights and stuff. And then you have to wait for the heat to actually fill the bag. A dry cleaner bag is pretty big, um, and when it was finally heated,
0: you could let it go, and it would rise very slowly. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's a good explanation. See, you're so good at this. I can just pitch this stuff, and you you're always get a a good a good explanation. Well, a good and, and explanation. you called me a de- you called me a
1: debunker, and and uh, what's interesting is. A good ufo investigator can explain most cases mm-hmm. so is explaining ufo reports debunking i think a debunker is more somebody who refuses to even consider uh ufos as anything other than bunk and uh um and i don't think ufos are bunk necessarily especially with regard to some of these pilot cases and number of cases that, that we have uh on file oh by the way the Pentagon said that they looked at 120 cases um, over the past 20 years. Well, over the past 20 years, I have 350, three times as much, uh, pilot and uh, military reports of, uh, of UFOs in Canada alone. Wow. So uh, the numbers don't add up
0: or they, they add up wrong down in the, in the Pentagon. Take that. Now who should be running the country? Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, this has been eye-opening, Chris. I always enjoy talking about this stuff. Uh, I look forward to whatever weird thing comes up next. The UFO survey for this year is going to be a while away, but uh, I'm sure some more interesting stuff. I'll have you back on when the Pentagon report's released officially, and we'll go through it.
1: Okay. Um, And uh, don't forget my next book is is coming out uh, July the 31st it is what is okay the title i can tell you the title now it's called canada's ufos declassified
0: you've already talked about the number of um military canadian ufo sightings so i think i got a pretty good idea what you're getting at yeah perfect it's it's so timely yeah
1: so it's not coming out it's a little it's later than i thought there's been some delays from the publisher
0: but uh Uh, July 31st is the scheduled date right now. When did you start working on it? I'm just curious how Uh, long
1: this has been. This has been a a while in the works. I I went through all the National Research Council files, uh, plus some additional files, um, and uh, picked out some of the the favorites, some of the really interesting ones. And uh, um, uh, actually, the book is going to reproduce quite a lot of the official documents. So, some people can be able to see for
0: themselves. So I've been working on this for at least for a couple of years, for sure. When you when when the Pentagon reports out, you're on. When that dot, when that book's release, I uh, will read a copy and then we'll talk about it. <laughs> it's a deal. I want to thank you for joining Chris Rutkowski and I for our talk tonight. Hopefully, in the near future, more UFOs will crash into our planet, and we'll be able to do it again soon. But until then, I'll be looking for more stories about the ones that managed to stay airborne. And with that, I'll begin to wrap this episode up. But first, a big thanks to Chris Rutkowski for again sharing his time and his knowledge with us. As well, a big shout-out to Monty Data for contributing the music for this episode. What you heard was a piece called Noir Tokyo. And lastly, a massive thank you to everyone who listens to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, this show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But with that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. So if you want to help keep the grass cut around here, please consider subscribing to the premium feed. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can help the show out at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. And with that said, let me thank the newest supporters of the show. Blaine, Rob, Maureen, and Lynn, thank you for your generous support. If anyone listening has any story ideas or wants to give feedback on the show, find me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact, or on social media. I use Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and I'm often live on the Nighttime Podcast YouTube channel. So that's it. Until next time, take care of each other, Hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The
1: Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted,
0: and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.